we live in a world with a, a lot of information, a lot of information, uh, and especially with the advent of digital media and digital storage of information, there's our capacity to, uh, to use information and store information is, is huge. The year 2002 was, is known as the year where the amount of digital storage of information and the amount of sort of traditional storage of information flipped, that there was more digital information in the world than analog and other information. And then in five years later, in 2007, 94% of all information in the world was stored digitally, and I'm sure it's even higher today. We measure the amount of data and information that gets exchanged in zettabytes, zettabytes. A zettabyte is a, a multiple of the unit byte for digital information. The prefix zeta indicates multiplication by the seventh power of 1,000 or 10 to the 21st power. So a zettabyte is one sextillion bytes, of course. So think about it this way. In 2007, humans communicated 1.9 zettabytes of information through broadcast technology like television, GPS, and other you know, ways of sending information. That's the equivalent to every person on Earth reading 174 newspapers every day. Seven billion people, 174 newspapers each. Or, think about data. Video uses a lot of digital data, digital video. You know that because you handed your phone in, to a child and they accidentally streamed video and it ate up all your data. Or in my case, my dad did that. So, of course, my dad's able to pay me for the overage and my children aren't. But, that aside, uh, the highest definition video in the world is 8K ultra high definition video. And one zettabyte of 8K ultra high definition video would be 8 million years of video. So we're talking about vast amounts of data and information. And, and th these are good things. One author says, we live in a world where economies Political freedom, cultural growth, increasingly depend on our technological capabilities, which is true. But it's not all good, right? And we know that because there's this sort of counter movement against technology and information and just knowing everything all the time. Uh, there are people who are intentionally taking a Sabbath or taking a fast from digital technology and information. And people are going, I'm going to go off the grid for a day or for a week. And, People say, I'm not going to check my social media feeds. I don't need to know everything about everyone in my life right away. And people are, are intentionally trying to spend more quality time offline, away from information, uh, rethinking relationships on social networks, finding ways to just not feel guilty about having all the information right away. Now, this, is, this wave of data and information is not a new thing in our world. Back at the European Enlightenment, there was a whole new wave of information of books. And scholars then said, there's no way we can keep up with all this information. Yet, people are pretty ingenious, and they find ways to catalog information and ways to, uh, ways to store and sort information. And, and we kind of keep up. And today, we have all this digital information. We have computers. And computers can sort and analyze data and recall it quickly and can Again, processor speeds and things like that. I didn't want to get into that. I could, but I'm going to skip that part. 
Um, but there's all kinds of stuff. But, and how far will it go? So can we teach computers to make decisions about information and what we need and when we need it? And how smart can a computer be? How advanced can artificial intelligence go? So I'm part of this learning community at the seminary, and it's a two-year learning community, and one of our learning sessions was about technology, and we had the privilege to meet the, the director of artificial intelligence at MIT, a woman named Rosalind Picard, a brilliant woman, and she's, uh, she's a Christian, and she, she loves Jesus, and it was good to hear about her work. She was working on helping computers understand human emotion so that computers could process and understand emotion, which is profound. And we asked her, you know, how far will this go? Like, how close can a machine come to, to processing information like a human brain? And she said, you know, uh, m machines and computers are really good at handling information and following a script, but what a computer can't have is wisdom to make good choices. And as far as the technology is, computers are not even close to having wisdom. The point is this. There is a ton of information in our world. There is a good amount of knowledge in our world. But there is a scarcity of wisdom, of true wisdom. And we need wisdom. We need true wisdom. We need God's wisdom. Yet it's very scarce. There was a student at Columbia University who sued the school because part of the school's mission statement was that they were going to help students gain wisdom. And he did his whole degree, and he graduated, and he said, the school said I was going to gain wisdom. I don't have wisdom, and I don't even know what it is. So he sued the school for the entire cost of his tuition. Which seems like wisdom to me, but anyway. <laughs> um, I don't know if he won. I assume he lost, but... Um, your wisdom is so scarce, but we ask questions like, how do I achieve my life goals? Or what is a good life goal? How would I even know how to set life goals? How do I heal a broken relationship? How do I gain a good financial foundation for my life? How do I raise a child? How do I stay married to somebody who is just so different than me? Uh, what do I do when somebody's angry with me? Uh, all these types of questions. You know, how do I make a difference in my work, you know, at my job? To answer those questions, you want the deepest wisdom, not just information, not just data, but you want wisdom that's proven and true and somebody who has all the experience. And that is what we get in the book of Proverbs. We get God's wisdom, God's ancient wisdom, which is still true today, which comes to bear on all these questions and all these issues of life, uh, wisdom that can't be computed, wisdom that is just in very rare supply in our or in very rare use, I'll say, in our world today. My hope, as we, as we continue in this series through the book of Proverbs, that we as a people will come to know God's wisdom and apply God's wisdom in our everyday lives, on the front lines of our lives, wherever God is to call us, on the 110 of our lives, as we sometimes call it, that we would use God's wisdom, and as we use it, we're displaying God's wisdom to a world around us that is so desperate for it. So um, as we display that, God is glorified because it demonstrates his wisdom. And that's our hope. And we're going to look at chapter 3 today, or part of chapter 3. Let's pray as we begin. So Father, we, we here right now are desperate for you and your wisdom. And Father, I pray that you would grant it to us. We ask for your wisdom. We know that you are a God who loves to give 
wisdom, and we are just humans, but you are the God of the universe. Fill our hearts and our minds with your wisdom by the power of your spirit in this time. We give this time to you. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Chapter 3 of the book of Proverbs. Let's just look at the beginning. There's a little introductory statement here. It says, My son, don't forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. This starts, it, just pay attention. Don't forget my wisdom. And we, we can forget God's wisdom. And that's not just a mental thing when we forget God's wisdom. It's a moral issue. The same as a child, hypothetical child, not my children, of course. But um, you ask a child to do something, clean your room. And you go back a half hour later. The room's not clean. I asked you to clean your room. Oh, I forgot. Yes. You forgot four times I've asked you to clean your room. That's very convenient that you forget to do the thing you don't really want to do. This is not a mental issue, son or daughter. This is a moral issue. This is, we have an issue here. Don't forget. Yet we tend to forget. And here's the point. If you live in wisdom, if you make wisdom part of your nature, you write it on the tablet of your heart, you bind it as if it was hanging around your neck, God's wisdom just becomes a part of your life. If you walk in that way, then you will prosper. Now, this sermon could easily be titled, How to Be Prosperous. And, and we'll come back to that uh, later, but true prosperity begins with your relationship to God, as we understand it here. Having wisdom in your relationship to God will bring about a true prosperity in your life. And we can have a prosperous life by being wise towards God. And here's four things. Four ways that we can be wise in our relationship to God, and I'll, we'll move through these four here. Trust, fear, give, and accept. First, trust. Verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, submit to him, and he will make your paths straight. This is one of the magnet verses. It's called a magnet verse. It's a verse that you're likely to see on a refrigerator magnet. You're familiar with this? There's a number of them in the Bible, or posters, or um, T-shirt, tattoos. So uh, a lot of times those magnet verses don't mean exactly what I think the Bible intended them to mean. Jeremiah 29, 11 is a magnet verse. It's a great verse. It belongs on magnets. But when you read in context what God is saying there, it may not mean exactly what you think it means or what you want it to mean. Philippians 4, uh, 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Again, great verse, belongs on the magnet, but it may not mean exactly what you want it to mean or what you think it means. There's probably a little more to it as you read what the apostle was saying there when he wrote that. This verse, these verses, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, they mean exactly what they mean. This is, I mean, get the magnet now. Put it on your fridge. Write it down. Call up and make the appointment for the tattoo on that. And if you're not into that, cross-stitch. Order the cross-stitch for Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 and start in every X you make on that cross-stitch. 
you know that these words are words for you exactly what they mean. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding in all of your ways. Submit to him or acknowledge him. Probably a better translation. Acknowledge, notice, uh, be aware of him and he will make your paths straight. Usually if you go for the tattoo, you'd avoid the cross stitch and vice versa. And so I just want to cover all our bases there. Notice, it says, with all your heart. The heart is the, is the soul seat of our spiritual strength. It's the inner core of the soul, the heart. With all of your heart, we are to trust in the Lord. This is about absolute obedience and surrender in every realm of your life. It's, it's obedient faith. We submit our whole selves, not just part of our lives, but our whole lives. And we get frustrated. You know, God's way isn't going well for me or things aren't going the way I want. And then we ask, have you trusted God with your whole heart? And we don't trust God with our whole hearts and yet we complain about how things are going. How do we get there? How do we trust with our whole heart? And I'll tell you, you can't, not trust God with your whole heart one moment, and then in the next moment, you just trust God with your whole heart. It's like any relationship in your life, that it's, it's steps of trust, one after another, where God is proving himself trustworthy, and it builds on itself, much like a dating relationship. For those of you who are married, you know, you didn't start trusting, I hope you trust your spouse now, but it doesn't start at that level of trust. You start by meeting somebody, and you trust them enough to give them your contact information, your phone number, and they call you, and you trust them enough to maybe meet them in public, <laughs> and, and then you trust them enough to share how you're feeling and, and your emotions, and then maybe you trust deeper, and you want to share your hopes and dreams about life, and then another step of trust is, I want to trust and, and share life with you and, and accomplish these hopes and dreams together and, and be uh, united in marriage and, and live life together and, and share everything together. And this is trust that builds over time. It's the same with our relationship to God. That God is a God who calls us to trust him in, in small ways, in daily steps. And God wants to prove himself faithful to us. That's amazing. The God of the universe wants to prove himself faithful to you. And if you will trust him, he will prove himself, he'll, he will prove himself faithful to you. And that's how this whole heart trust is built. One promise after another that God fulfills. He proves himself trustworthy. And we, so we trust in the Lord with all of our heart, but we lean not on our own understanding. If God is who God is, then I would be a fool to trust myself and not trust the God of the universe who made me, who made all things, who knows all things. And yet, I ignore God's wisdom and do it my own way. And I remember times in my life, I, I had a moment, I was 19 years old, and I remember, I thought that I was just doing everything right, and I ended up in trouble, I ended up back home at the house I grew up in, and I just was done, and I said, God, I've tried it. I've done it my way. It's not working. You try. I, I'm done. And I remember that moment was a, a pivotal moment for me. Now, again, I didn't go from not trusting, you know, the next day that I was fully, you know, with all my heart trusting him, but there was a, a turning point and a milestone in my life where I was learning to trust because my wisdom didn't 
work. This is how God operates. This is how our whole faith is based. Our whole ability to know and experience God is all about us getting to the end of ourselves, realizing that it's a complete failure, and trusting him alone. That's how we are, that's how we are in a relationship with God. We, by nature, are in a broken relationship with God in our own sin, in our own way, and until we turn from that and say, God, I can't save myself, all my good deeds, all these religious things, God, they're just not working, and I turn from those, and I just trust you in your grace. I try to accomplish things, but I really, what I really need is to trust what Jesus accomplished on the cross on my behalf. Jesus died in my place. So I'm done with my way. I accept his sacrifice and the new life he brings with that. And you receive that. And that's when we are saved. That's when we have new life as we trust him, get to the end of ourselves. Same with God's wisdom. I'm done with my wisdom and doing it my own way. I'm going to go God's way. Turning from mine and I'm putting my faith in his wisdom alone. That's when life starts to make sense, and that's how God works. Notice here, though, in verses 9 and 10, it's in all of your ways acknowledging him. It's not that I'm going to use God's wisdom for most of my life, but there's areas of my life where God's wisdom doesn't work. So I'm going to try it over here, but in my industry or my place of work, in this relationship, God's way isn't convenient. It's not really working. Yet we are called in all of our ways, in your family, education, career, finance, friendships, relationships, all of it. But in this, there's great blessing. He will make your paths straight. He will make your paths smooth. That does not mean that you will be comfortable and popular and thin. That does not mean that you will always have God to satisfy your every wish. What it does mean that God is making your path straight, that God is making your path smooth, is that as you trust him, your life will have a good direction, a good purpose. It will be full of meaning and focus and fulfillment. That is the blessing of trust. So that's trust. Start your cross stitch tomorrow. Second thing, the second way to be wise in your own... uh, Not wise in your own eyes. Oh, my goodness. The second way to be wise in your relationship to God is to, verse 7, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Fear the Lord. Look at that last week. Pastor Brian was here preaching. The, the, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is where it all starts, when we acknowledge God for who he is and acknowledge ourselves for who we are, that God is God and we are not. Jesus said it like this, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who who kill your body and after that can do nothing more. I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after killing the body, has the power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. I mean, we should, in essence, be terrified of God. Now, we're not terrified of God because we know his grace and we know his loving kindness and his patience with us. But if we see God as he really is, he is a holy and unblemished God, and we are a sinful and broken people. We have no business in his presence. He could wipe us out at any moment. This should instill a holy fear in every one of us. But we don't 
we, we lose that because we, we cling to his love, and that's good. God does not want us to be terrified of him. He wants us to know his grace and his love, but we must never forget his power and his holiness and his majesty. We should fear the Lord. Now, the opposite of fear the Lord is being wise in your own eyes. Do not, uh, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. So if fearing the Lord is understanding who, is, who he is and who I am in light of that, being wise in your own eyes is understanding yourself and trying to understand God in light of who you are. Or trying to paint an image of God that fits what you want. I'll give you an example. Uh, just over a week ago, I was camping with my family, and um, I was using a piece of equipment, and I broke it, as I'm prone to do. And some neighboring campers noticed that I was having trouble, and they said, would you like to borrow our pump to inflate your air mattresses? I said, yes, thank you very much. And we got, I was returning the pump to them, and they, we were chatting. It came out that I was a pastor, and they had lots of questions. And I was asked questions about, what does your church teach about environmental issues. What does your church teach about this? And I, you know, I gave an answer, and I was explaining you know, our church is very much uh, in favor of creation care, that we should be good stewards of the environment and um, loving our neighbors in that way, but also caring for the, for the earth. And that, was that was satisfactory to her. But as she was going down her list of things, if I had said something that was unsatisfactory to what she wanted God to be, she would have said, well, that's not the kind of church I'd go to. It started with her list of demands on God. And that was, then she was trying to evaluate how we teach about God in light of her demands. Does that make sense? Fearing the Lord is about understanding God's demand on humanity. Creator, created, and in viewing him in light of, of that. Not in light of what we would want from God. There's a big difference there. But we are a people who are very wise in our own eyes and want the world to work a certain way because we feel smart. That may not be how God designed the world. As we fear the Lord, though, look at this blessing. Verse 8. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Your body, literally your navel, your umbilical cord, like right in the center of your guts. You have this health and nourishment to your bones, literally your marrow, the center of your very bones and your being will be nourished and will have health. Now, this is using a physical description to describe a spiritual reality. There's people who fear the Lord who become ill. There are people who fear the Lord who don't have you know, nourish, health and nourishment in their body, but it's a, it's a condition of life. Again, this promise of long life, the promise of health, these are, these are ways to describe a fullness of life in a spiritual health and, and purpose that, that God brings to those who live in his wisdom. It's a condition that you can have even if you're ill. So we fear the Lord. Trust the Lord, fear the Lord. The third way to be wise in your relationship to God is to give. Verse 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth, the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. Interesting here. Why generosity? Why is this on the primary list of things, right up there with, you know, trust the Lord, fear the Lord, and be generous? It seems almost out of place. 
think to answer that, we always have to remember that generosity is not something that God wants from you. As if God has some unmet need and his storehouses are too empty so that you have to, you know, that you somehow have to support God. Generosity is not something God wants from you. It's something God wants for you. And the way that we handle our prosperity and our wealth is very indicative of how we view God. Do we view God as the author and the source of all these things? Then we can freely give them back as an act of faith and as an act of gratitude. But if, if we feel that we're in control and our wisdom rules things, then we're more inclined to hold on to what we have to cling to our possessions, to cling to our money. And this, especially in our country, is such a common way for our faith to get trapped by not handling our wealth well. It trips people up. It becomes an idol in life. I mentioned this learning community I'm part of, and we're going to get a chance in August, later in August, to travel to China together. And we're going to be learning about how the gospel is advancing in China through different expressions of, of, uh, of the gospel and of, of the Christian faith. And we're, gonna, we're just going there to learn and to talk to leaders. I have a friend of mine who went on a similar trip last, a couple years ago. And they asked, they said, look, we live in a country that has great freedom and a lot of resources and churches are shrinking and Christianity is sort of on the decline in the United States. But you are being persecuted and the government would imprison you if they knew we were even having this conversation. And, you know, that you have so many obstacles, yet the gospel is spreading like crazy. What is the difference? And, and a Chinese Christian said this to my friend. He said something along these lines. He said, the difference is that we've done a better job with our persecution than you have with your prosperity. We've done a better job with our persecution than you have with your prosperity. Ouch. But right at the top of the list is how we respond to our wealth. How we are generous. And there's a lot of Proverbs on wealth, and we're going to get to them as we go through this. As we trust God, but as we trust God with our wealth, there is great blessing in it. Uh, the prophet Malachi 3.10 says, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. It's talking about bringing a, a, a tithe, a tenth of, of all that you have to give back to the work of the Lord. And God says, trust me in this one. Watch how I want to bless you as you are generous. And then there's a whole bunch of Proverbs about this. And then money, when Jesus is teaching, money was a... a a focal point of Jesus' teaching. It was important to him. It was a key to wisdom here, a top indicator of the condition of the heart. What are your priorities? We'll just look at how you handle your wealth. The main reason many people get into debt and financial trouble is because they do not use God's wisdom for money. If you follow God's wisdom for money, generally, people find that there's balance in that and that their needs are met. And when people are foolish, quite frankly, or selfish with their money, it can lead to trouble. And the blessing here, the promise, is that you'll have enough. Your barns will be filled to overflowing. Your vats will be 
that will brim over with new wine. Now, I'll say this. This is in one of the problems with Proverbs is what if, you know, not everybody who is generous has just this great abundance of wealth. But in general, as we follow God's wisdom, the Proverbs are wisdom. They're maxims. They're general ways of, of life that following God's path that lead to good places. They're not promises that, okay, if I give a certain amount, then I'm going to get a certain amount back. So I'll be generous, and then it's like, it's going to swing back to me automatically, and I'll have more money. And you know, If you give $100, I can promise you today that you will have $100 less. <laughs> but there is a blessing as people are generous with what they have, with a heart that is trusting him, that they see that you do have enough and that there is a great blessing and provision that God has as we are generous. So we give. So we trust, we fear, we give. And we'll finish with this, accept. Accepting discipline. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. Discipline here is instruction, not punishment. Christ came and died on a cross taking your punishment for your sin. So when you experience hardship, it's not about God punishing you. Now, there are consequences to certain lifestyle and certain sin that we experience. We, we follow a path of foolishness and we suffer the consequences of that. But as we follow the Lord, we, we sometimes run into struggles and, and sickness. And, and we, we know this is very realistic. Even somebody who trusts the Lord doesn't have this just life of uninterrupted blessing all the time. But God cares about us, and he's with us in those things, and he uses them to refine us and grow our faith and grow our love and help us to trust him. Hebrews chapter 12 quotes this very verse, Hebrews 12, 5, and 6, that suffering is a sign of our sonship. It's a sign of God's love for us, that he will walk through us through our pain and suffering, that he loved us so much that he walked a path of pain and suffering and death that he understands our needs and he understands the human condition, um, that he is a, a priest, a high priest who understands us. And the blessing is his love. God loves you that much. If you're here this morning and you are struggling or you are hurting, I want you to know that God knows and God cares. God is not punishing you. He is with you in the midst of your hurt. If we don't accept his punishment, we become bitter and angry at God in his ways. But as we accept it and see his presence with us, our faith grows. So that's it. Trusting the Lord, fearing the Lord, being generous with your money and accepting discipline. True prosperity begins with your relationship to God, having wisdom in your relationship to God. So if anyone asks you today, is your pastor one of those prosperity preachers you say yes he's a prosperity preacher and he says trust the lord fear the lord be generous and accept his discipline <laughs> that's how we teach prosperity amen trust in the lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding is there an area of your life and even as i'm speaking something may come to mind an area of your life where you are not trusting him would you take a step this week to trust him with that area of your life? And you can just, it's a simple prayer. You pray, God, help me to trust you with fill in the blank.
Or maybe even a first step of trust. Perhaps you've never trusted God in his grace. Would you trust Jesus, whose death and life opens up a way to have a relationship with God, to be adopted into his family? Would you trust him with even that today? You just have to admit that you need it. You just have to admit that you've come to the end of yourself and to follow him. I have very few, if not no, regrets from following the Lord. I have a whole book of regrets for ways that I've done it on my own in my life. May we be people who trust him with all of our heart. Amen.